0: You know, Putin invested billions and billions in the army during the last years, when there were all these windfall profits that were coming out of huge oil prices. So they assumed, as far as we understand, they were going to take control over the capital of Ukraine, Kiev, in three days. And we see now pictures from Ukraine. We see that apparently Russian troops have problems with logistics. They have problems with delivering gas. They have problems with rotation, because billions of dollars were stolen. Because each and every general, or each and every member of the Putin's closest entourage has immense villas, immense yachts. And not just one, but several. These are people whose life was based on making money inside Russia, but spending this money outside Russia in the luxuries of Europe and the United States. And now, the good
1: fight with Yasha Monk. It has now been a little over two weeks since Russian troops invaded Ukraine started to bombard its cities, went on Vladimir Putin's mission of enlarging the Russian empire and ending Ukraine's existence as a nation. The resistance from Ukraine has been more impressive, smart, skillful, more admirable, more courageous, more idealistic than we could have imagined. The response from the West has been much stronger than I feared in my initial podcast on this with George Packer, for example. There even is new form of the idealistic foreign brigades we saw during the Spanish Civil War with thousands of people around the world volunteering to help Ukraine fight for its liberty. All of this is a little heartening and yet overall my feeling right now is one of sorrow and dread. It is sorrow at this unnecessary war, sorrow at the destruction that we're seeing right as I'm recording this with stepped up Russian bombardments of civilian targets in Ukraine and sorrow and dread at what is likely to come in the next weeks and months and perhaps years. The best case scenario is some form of diplomatic solution, even if that involves some painful concessions. But I think as likely a scenario at this point is a military conflict that lasts for a long time, followed by an occupation that lasts for even longer. What's becoming clear is that the fight for freedom in Ukraine, but also the fight for freedom outside of Ukraine is going to be defining the coming decades, last a very long time and take real sacrifices. And if we're serious about making sure that people like Vladimir Putin don't call the shots in the world, we have to come to terms practically, but also psychologically with what that will ask of us in the years to come. My guest today is Yevgenia Albats. Yevgenia is one of the most prominent liberal political journalists in Russia. She's a political scientist with a PhD from Harvard University. She is, or used to be, until it was shut down just a few days ago, the editor-in-chief of The New Times. And as you will hear in the conversation, she is both an excellent analyst, but has a compelling story to tell about what it is like to live under dictatorship in Russia and how rapidly the remaining space for free speech, for political engagement, for liberty has closed in Russia over these last days and weeks. We just finished recording and it's a conversation in which what it means concretely for human beings to live under dictatorship became painfully clear. So I think it's not just an informative conversation, but also a compelling document of life in Russia during this terrible war on Ukraine. Yevgenia Alberts, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. So these are dark days in the world, but also dark days in Russia. Can you describe to us what the last few weeks have been like within Russia?
0: You know, it is partially a personal story. Two weeks ago, you would ask me, you know, how can I introduce you? And I would tell you, Yasha, I am editing chief of the digital-only political website, The New Times. I am a talk show host at the free-wheeling Echamasku Broadcasting. Each Monday, I have my show. It's very popular. I have one million, you know, listeners. On top of that, each Tuesday. I run my YouTube channel and I'm making money out of my YouTube channel and doing all kind of you know political stuff there. I'm a political animal and all things political. That's what I love. That's why I subscribe to your podcast. I listen to you and I listen to other political podcasts. However, so February twenty fourth, that was when Putin started the war against neighboring Ukraine, and so. Two days later, we were told by the Russian Minister of Truth, that's how we call it, you know, that is, you know, the agency that oversees, you know, communications and tells what kind of words we can use and we cannot. Apparently, we were told that we cannot say war, invasion, and offense with respect to the events in Ukraine. We can say it is a special operation of Russian troops to demilitarize and denazify Ukraine. So, because of course we said that this is a war and that Russian Federal troops invaded Ukraine from three sides, the New Times was blocked two days into the war. And now one can read whatever we do only through VPN. I don't know whether you're Listeners are aware about virtual private network. They can be free. They can be, you know, if you have to have a good one, you have to pay for it. But that what allows you to pretend as if, you know, you're sitting in Moscow, but in fact, you know, for the internet, for the purpose, you, for instance, in London, in New York, or God knows where it's where. So those who use, and a lot of our readers, they know how to use VPN, so we work for those who are capable to do this. Okay, I said, not nice, but of course, you know, everything compared to what is happening in Ukraine is just peanuts. So, on Monday, I had my show at Square, and I had a reporter from Kiev who was reporting about what was going on in Kiev, and I had a military analyst, and I had... A political scientist, so everything was OK. I did my show. It was pretty well accepted. Apparently, it turned out it was my last show, because the following Thursday, Eman were cut off the air. You know, we found ourselves in a pure Arwellian world. Like in 1984, you know, lies are truth. Peace is war, and that's exactly how we're supposed to operate in this country. And along with Ekamaski, another sixteen different independent media, with an internet-based TV channel, TV Rain, or pretty good regional papers, NAC, which comes out, you know, in Oral Mountains, it shut down itself. You know, some publications just decided to stop putting their stuff out of the fear that they were going to get arrested. Others were shut down. And as if that was not enough, last Friday, Russian state Duma, it is a body of yes men who pretend that they are parliament. It's just, you know, like Reichstag in times of Hitler. Or be- before, of course, you know, Hitler, the Zolta Reichstag. So they passed three repressive laws in accordance with which you can get 15 years in jail for publishing what they call fake news. What is it, fake news? Any information about the special operation in Ukraine, other than from the Minister of Defense of the Russian Federation, is considered fake news. If you call for sanctions against the Russian Federation, and you say, you know, that sanctions should be imposed because Russia is an aggressor, You can get five years in jail. There is another law that speaks against discreditation of the Russian army. It used to say, if you say that Russian missiles destroyed the center of Kharkiv and civilian buildings and civilians got killed, that's discreditation of the Russian army. When these laws were passed and then President Putin signed it into law the next day, Then almost all reporters and editors and political scientists and economists, they ran to the airports and left the country. There are so very few of us left here. It's even scary because you call somebody, and you know, this is a guy who covered the Second War in Chechnya, or you know, did a very good glossy magazine. And he tells you, Zhenya, but listen, I'm not a Russian. Ah, okay. And then you call for an expert, a political economist, a great guy, you know, who's professor at the university here and also a professor of the American University. And he tells you, no, I'm in Istanbul. And so. Of course, you know, Americans, they probably don't know that after the 1917 revolution, a lot of intellectuals found themselves in Constantinople, right? It's also Turkey, as Istanbul is Turkey. And there is a joke that there is a repetition of what happened back in 1917. I wouldn't go that far, but it's true that Istanbul is stuffed with Russian intellectuals and reporters and editors and artists and filmmakers and, uh, you know, talk show hosts and TV personalities. And so they're there. Or you can find people with a little bit bigger bark. They take Elial and fly to Tel Aviv. Business people, they fly to Dubai and Abu Dhabi. You know, prices went significantly up. The entire Europe closed for us. And beginning yesterday, all Russian airlines stopped doing international flights because the majority of their planes are in leasing. And so, leasing companies already called those planes back. So, they no longer fly. So, one of my reporters, a young kid, She wrote to me, she's from St. Petersburg, and she wrote to me that, you know, Evgenia Markovna, I'm urgently getting married, that question. I'm urgently getting married because I don't want to go in exile alone. So to cut the long story short, Yasha, I feel myself, it's very ambiguous because on the one hand, I feel awful about I'm a Russian citizen I'm citizen of the Russian Federation, and I always thought that being a political journalist, I have to have the same sort of constraints and the same settings as people I write for. I couldn't have applied for Israeli citizens because I'm Jewish, or you know, Spanish or Portuguese, because centuries ago my ancestors went from Morocco and they were kicked out from Spain and Portugal. It never even occurred to me to do that. I thought that, you know, I just have to be a Russian as readers for whom I write. But apparently, it is a shame now. You know, I feel so ashamed that my country, which went through the awful realities of the World War II, my country, which lost 27 million people, to Nazi occupation and the war. My dad fought at the front of the World War II. And you know where? In Nikolaev, Yasha. It is like a joke of history. My dad was parachuted on the territory of the Nazi-occupied Ukraine. Of course, you know, he was Jewish, but by his legend, he was Georgian, Grigory Basile. His r- real name was Mark Elbots, Grigory Basile. And his safe house where he had his radio transmitter, some other stuff, as far as it's It was in the city of Nikolaev. It's Nikolaev in Ukraine, Nikolaev. It's the same city which is under attack as we speak. So back then in 1941, Nikolai was occupied by Romanian troops who were allies to Nazi Germany, and my dad was fighting Germans, right, who who were at war with the Soviet Union. Now, you just think about this: German government provided Ukrainians with the anti-tank missiles in order to fight Russian tanks, and they do this exactly in Nikolai. And this twist of history, it's just unbelievable. And I feel angry and ashamed of what my country did. And at the same time, you know, I'm constantly watching whatever I can find on the internet because, of course, Russian propaganda machine doesn't show anything. And I see all these awful scenes of destroyed Kharkiv and Vinnytsia, which is destroyed. And my people were from Statoly, not far from Vinitsa, Dzerashnya. And Zhitomir is destroyed, the center is destroyed, and Nikolaev is under attack. And now, you know, they're moving towards Odessa. And it's just impossible even to think, because I traveled so many times around Ukraine. I know it. I love it. You know? I always felt very secure there. And, of course, you know, you just think about this, Yasha. People there speak the same language I speak. 95% of people who resided in Kharkiv before the Resonance, they are Russian speakers. 95%! Kharkiv is destroyed. The center of Kharkiv is totally destroyed. You know, it's just, wow.
1: Thank you for your courage and for your vivid description of what's going on. I think one of the things that people who live in democracies often have trouble understanding is the differences between different gradations of dictatorship, between different gradations of authoritarian regimes, the difference even between sort of classic dictatorship and a totalitarian regime. You know, in 2015, Russia was already a dictatorship, but As you're describing, there are certain freedoms that people had. There was your ability to broadcast and so on. Tell us a little bit about sort of how that change of life is taking place. What it felt like to live under Putin four or five years ago, and what it might look like at the end of this war. And I guess one of the questions that I'm asking myself is the extent to which what we're seeing is a shift from a dictatorship to a totalitarian regime. Is that what we're in the middle of or not? And Tell us about that transformation, not just from the 90s to five years ago, but from five years ago to today.
0: I've been teaching so many times courses on regimes and predominantly authoritarian regimes. I should say that totalitarian regimes, they were frequent in the 20th century and they are pretty easy to describe. These are total regimes. The regimes, one party system regimes, where bureaucrats control all spheres of the society, everything economy, ideology, judiciary, private life, public life really doesn't exist. So it is the state, it's just one big state which takes over everything. Civil society doesn't exist. In total regimes, party serves as a form of government. It was true for Nazi Germany with the Nazi party. It was true for the Soviet Union, with the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, which was the form of governance. Of course, it wasn't a party. It was a vertical structure that controlled uh, this vast country of 300 million people. It is true for China. It is true for North Korea, with its Chuche Party. It's not communist, party, it's different type. But it doesn't matter. You know, these are not really parties. Also, what's important to understand that the three regimes, they are built on ideology. In the Soviet Union, of course, that was the ideology of the communist state. There was this idea that regular ordinary folks, they control the state. Of course, they didn't. But it was, you know, this kind of idea that was extremely attractive. And that's what allowed Soviet Union to attract and to control the half of the world that the United States didn't during the Cold War. Now, when it comes to authoritarian regimes, the most important part of, of the regime is that they usually don't bear any ideology. Putin doesn't have ideology or his people. They are Portuguese. They can be Democrats yesterday. They can turn into imperial nationalists today. They can become fascists tomorrow. And the kind of the regime that exists in the contemporary Russia, it's a pure corporate regime. The way Benito Mussolini described it, you know, back in the early 1920s, everything inside the state, no one against the state, no one outside the state. So there is a corporate state which is comprised out of the graduates of the Soviet Union's most repressive institution, the KGB. And... You know, their institutional culture and their organizational culture is built on violence. However, by the way, unlike in the total states where violence is an instrument of control and also of rule, authoritarian regimes tend to avoid whole-scale repressions. Everything can happen. Of course, you know, you remember that in Uruguay, when military junta uh, was running the country for a decade or so. They had, you know, I, I believe every 50th Uruguayan was in jail. But usually, as regimes, you know, they can be harsh, they can be mild. Uh, Russian authoritarianism is extremely corrupted, it's just ostensibly corrupt. You look what's happening in Ukraine. You know, Putin invested. Billions and billions in the army during the last years when there were all these windfall profits that were coming out of huge oil prices. So they assumed, as far as we understand, they were going to take control over the capital of Ukraine, Kiev, in three days. And we see now pictures from Ukraine. We see that apparently Russian troops have problems with logistics. They have problems with de- delivering gas. They have problems with rotation. Anyway, I spoke to some analysts and I asked him, why it's so bad? And the answer is because, you know, billions of dollars were stolen. Because each and every general or each and every member of the Putin's closest entourage has immense villas, immense yachts, and not just one but several. These are people, unlike, by the way, Soviets, whose life was based on making money inside Russia, but spending this money outside Russia in the luxuries of Europe and the United States.
1: So this is really helpful to me in thinking what Russia today isn't. I think I still struggle to describe what it is. So You know, you have a sort of soft dictatorship in some countries in which you can't criticize the government directly in too extreme a way or in too popular a format. State television is basically under control of the state and emits propaganda. There's a pretense of elections, but they're not truly free and fair, so everybody knows who the winner is going to be. But you can have opposition spaces, where people express their opinion to some extent. You can have a small intellectual magazine with critiques of a government nobody particularly cares about. And you can certainly go about your life, you know, as an ordinary citizen saying, I don't care about politics and pretty much do what you want and be left alone. So that's on one sort of side. It seems to me that Russia is no longer that because they are closing down your YouTube channel and your show because... There is now a demand for proactive forms of agreement with the government because of the much more extreme pressure on ordinary citizens that seems to be taking place in the last few weeks at least. On the other hand, we have this model of a totalitarian regime where you have to be in active agreement with a government, where you have to prove your loyalty in a proactive way, where there's no such thing as an apolitical choral society or an apolitical chess club. They all have to be active subsidiaries of the regime, and it's all subsumed to an overarching ideology, as was the case in the Soviet Union, as was the case in the Third Reich. But you're saying Russia isn't exactly becoming that, because it doesn't have enough of an ideology for that. It's not the right model. for so how to understand... What Russia is or will be in the next few months? Where does it fall on the scale? Or you said perhaps corporatism? Like, like how should we think about the nature of a political system that's coalescing today in Russia?
0: I will say directly: corporate state. That's fasho. That what we call fascism. Yes. It's definitely not Nazi Germany because it's not based on the idea of destruction of one religion totally and killing all Jews and all Roma and all people who don't fit to be proper Aryans. But to look for the comparison, I would say Spain under Franca, and I would say Portugal under Salazar. I would say that that's the closest models. But keep in mind, Yasha, that until two weeks ago, my broadcasting, Erkamaskwi, did exist. There were four of us, liberal voices, but we were out there. And no one could tell me, Evgenia, please don't say this. Just no way. That was the rule of the game, that we could say whatever we considered right to do. No one could tell me what to publish in the New Times. However, there were other publications and pretty good newspapers who were allowed to talk about corruption and who could publish stories about, you know, Chechen dictator, a madman, Kadyrov, but they were not allowed to say anything bad about Putin. FSB, his Czechists, you know, and his closest entourage. So in the situation, Russia politically gradually was getting from bad to worse. And the reason why so many people immigrated last Friday was precisely that the kind of laws that were passed, this military censorship, it made impossible for the absolute majority of the outlets to cover the war as it should be covered. Now, when I come out on my website or on my YouTube channel, I cannot say war. I say special operation or I say military conflict. I cannot say about atrocities, which Russian troops do commit in Ukraine. For that, I will have to leave the country. Most likely, I will have to do it because You speak and you constantly tell yourself, you cannot say this, you can say this, not because they're going to close you. It's no longer the question of your existence as a publication. It's the question of your personal freedom.
1: What do you think is the view of most Russians on the war? Is the propaganda from the state so effective and the blackout of independent media so effective that, most Russians believe the Kremlin's version of events? Or do you think that there is a widespread recognition of the nature of this war and perhaps even widespread opposition to it?
0: Of course, you know, it's a $64,000 question because you would ask yourself, what was the point for Putin and his people to close all the independent media? If Putin is so popular, if his propaganda machine is so effective, if two-thirds of the population support the war as state-owned pollsters claim, then why create yourself so many problems by closing down everything? After all, you guys, yourself and Kremlin, you need to listen to something, to hear something. In the Soviet Union, they had this problem, this is what we call information asymmetry, right? So in the strict authoritarian regimes, Paul's sociology doesn't really exist because people are afraid to say what they really think. I will give you an example. I have a twin. We grew up in the same family. We're very close and so on. If a pollster calls me and asks me if elections are going to be next Sunday, who you are you going to vote for? I say, Navalny. Of course, you know, he's my friend. Alexei Navalny. My twin, who is pretty much of the same ideas as I am, she would say Putin. Why? Because she's afraid. And that's why it's impossible really to talk about the public opinion in this type of regime. Now, there is just one poll pollster left, Levada Center, which is an independent, which was pronounced a foreign agent in which is not allowed to conduct polls during the elections or during the kind of, you know, situation like now. But right after the beginning of the war, they conducted a brief poll. Of course, you know, it's telephone-based polls, so God knows, you know, what kind of sample they have and how random is the sample. But anyway, say they try to do their best. So their outcome was that about 45% were in favor of the war and 40% against. My guts tell me, and judging by the vindictivity of Kremlin with respect to media who were immediately opposed to war, the liberal media, I think that probably most likely 50-50. In fact, when Putin invaded Georgia back in 2008, when there was this war against Georgia, Russian liberal media won the information war. It was commonly accepted that, you know, that we managed to tell the real story to the Russian public and Putin, if he's good in anything, he's very good in learning lessons. So that's why I don't believe that two thirds of Russians as state pollsters, and there are just two of them claim. And by the way, they give about the same numbers, just statistically impossible. The two different pulses come with, you know, the same numbers, just impossible.
1: The two different state-owned pulses came up with exactly the same figure. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I love it. I love, it. I love this kind of uh, pulse. So that's what I think. But, you know, I don't know. I'm thinking about, unfortunately, you know, I had a knee replacement surgery, And that's why, you know, it's a little bit difficult for me to move around. But I'm thinking about getting into my car and going places and asking people questions.
1: That would be fascinating. A lot of Putin's appeal to ordinary Russians, such as it is, was based on the contrast between the economic chaos and the suffering of the 1990s, and the relative affluence that Russia has achieved since then. The sanctions that are now in place on Russia will obviously have a deep and immediate effect on the affluence of Russia. Some estimates assume that the country will lose up to half of its GDP in a matter of months. What effect do you think that is going to have on Putin's popularity, but also on the stability of his regime?
0: Yes, you know this very well, that this type of regimes, they're affected not by the popular uprisings, because usually popular uprisings do not happen. Or even if they happen, they are suppressed with repressions. That's exactly what we see. You know, Russians go on the streets in 50 plus cities across the country against the war on a daily basis. Almost 15,000 people already arrested and put in jail and some for 15 or 30 days in jail for the anti-war protest. And anti-war, even the wording is forbidden now because that's what goes for discreditation of the Russian military. So the question, I think, is when the split of the elites is going to happen. And just think about this. As I said earlier, elites in Russia, they got accustomed to make their profits in Russia out of oil and gas rent, of course. You know, it's a a rental-oriented economy, out of bribes. So all of a sudden, just out of the blue skies, they lost their possibility to live in Europe. They got accustomed, as I said, to make money inside Russia, but many of them live in Europe or they have their villas in Italy and on the French Riviera. They have their kids studying in the Western universities or in the boarding schools in Switzerland, Great Britain, and some in the United States. And now all this nice life came to an end. On top of that, they lost billions. In accordance to some estimate. Russian billionaires collectively lost $34 billion. It's an estimate. And that's the very beginning. It's just the beginning. However, it's not just about billionaires. It's about the upper middle class. Putin's main, by the way, you know, support group, you know, his main constituency, his own, you know, FSB, you know, these Czechists, you know, secret police people, Sylviki, army, etc., who also became very rich during these years of high oil prices. And these guys got a custom because you know they robbed businesses on a daily basis. They created millions and they invested those millions in different offshores in the different blue chips. In your country, by the way, too. And all of a sudden, they lost their access. To their money savings, into their investments, and crypto exchanges closed, and accounts closed, and they no longer can transfer more than ten thousand dollars a month from the Moscow-based account to the foreign account, and they don't have access to their offshores and Russian blue chips. You know, became paper, just you know, worth less than a paper. And we are talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of people in their late 30s, early 40s. They got accustomed to go to Dubai and to Abu Dhabi once in two months. Or many of them, they even have their property there. They got accustomed to go skiing in Russian Sochi. You know, it's very, very expensive ski resort. They got accustomed to get to Riviera whenever they can. And now all this life went down the torrent. So I think that regime is getting to be very unstable. Yes, of course, the other side of instability will be increased repressions, obviously because they understand what's going to happen as well as I do. Or at least, you know, there are political scientists like Fyodor Lukyanov who is going to tell them what's going to happen and what they should be afraid of. There are 17 million Russians that live below the poverty line. And of course, you know, the devaluation of the Russian ruble is about 40% already. It will go worse. And a lot of people, you know, will become very poor. And those who are more or less okay now, will become poor, and those who are poor, they will become beggars. It's all true. However, the ability of the repressive apparatus to suppress any dissent is pretty good. They're pretty effective. The most important is that when you have this state propaganda machine, it's difficult for people to create association with each other. That's exactly what Soviets did. So that people in uh, Kursk, say, uh, they wouldn't realize that their life as bad as those in Tver, and not because, you know, their local guys are so bad, but because the guy who's sitting in Kremlin, their savings and their life into the war in Ukraine.
1: When we're talking about splits in the elite, which you're absolutely right, often the beginnings of a downfall of authoritarian regimes, I've been thinking for the last few days about an interesting divergence between the life of Vladimir Putin and the lives of the people around him. You know, Putin has a lot of corrupt wealth that he, I'm sure, has parked in various vehicles and probably including in the West. But his life isn't immediately changing. He hasn't been traveling out of Russia Very much, he continues to live in the Kremlin. He continues to be at the head of a state apparatus, even though he may on paper have lost some of his wealth. His day-to-day experience is the same now as it would have been a month or so ago. Whereas for the most powerful players around him, life has changed quickly and drastically in the ways you talk about. And I wonder whether that's one of the ways in which he might start to misunderstand, miscalculate the interests and the experience of the people in his closest circle. But I guess that raises the question of what a split in the regime would look like. What kind of form would it take? And is there any hope to be had from it? Do you think that if there is some kind of split between different factions of a regime, there's any hope that that can lead to an improvement in the overall situation or to an accidental democratization? Or would it at best result in the substitution of one figurehead with another figurehead while, you know, the system of repression and and deep corruption continues?
0: I wish I could read the crystal ball. I'm not good at that at all. We know how the regime changed in countries like Brazil, Argentina, you know, in Latin American countries with a similar type of regimes. And we know that in some countries, they went from one military junta to another, like in Brazil, an ongoing coup or like in Bolivia, it became foremost, you know national sporting event. Each year, there was a coup, right? But, you know, we also know the example of Uruguay. When the military junta was in power for 10-plus years, they changed constitution, I believe, seven times, and then it just came to an end. And Uruguay got back to more or less democratic governance. So we know... Argentina between two perons, this awful 10 years when 20,000 young people disappeared. But then, you know, gradually through different economic crises, Argentina managed somehow to get on a more democratic way of governance. So I really don't want to make predictions. I can tell you one thing, just keep in mind that these last 30 years since the collapse of the Soviet Union, they were not in in vain. And those people who are in power now, they have children, and Russia is run by billionaires. Not by millionaires, by billionaires. And these billionaires, they have children who got accustomed to be children of billionaires. And these children of billionaires, they went to boarding schools in the States, or in Switzerland, or in the United Kingdom, and then they went to different good universities. And what's more important, they don't want to live in the golden cage. But our guys at the top of the power structure, they're already old enough. They have grandchildren. And those grandchildren, they just don't understand what their grandpa is doing right now, you know? Because they probably never lived in Russia or they just used to come to see daddy or, you know, grandpa for Russian Christmas. So if you remember Yasha, Stalin's daughter, Svetlana Lilova, did her best to escape and lived in the United States. Both Khrushchev's children lived in the United States. His niece lives in New York City right now. Gorbachev' daughter lives outside Russia, and his grandchildren they never been in the last five years, and that's what Gorbachev told him himself. Brezhnev's grandchild lives in the United States. Yeltsin's daughter and Yeltsin's grandchildren they live outside Russia. It is to say that Russian elite talking about great patriotism, extremely unpatriotic. They love this country to death, but to our death, not to their death. They prefer to love Russia from afar. And I don't believe that they are prepared to lock themselves inside Putin's Kremlin or inside Putin's Moscow Without possibility to fly to Spain just because there is some nice exhibition coming out, you know, or you know, without the possibility to spend some time on Riviera because they like this film festival, or because some of them just enjoy Monaco and Cassini in Monaco because Russian aristocracy in the Tsarist times used to come to Monaco to spend whatever proceed they got from the peasants. So to cut the long story short, no, I don't believe that these government of billionaires with their families of wives, you know, who go, no longer, they have Prada in Moscow. Prada walked away. How can you live in the city that doesn't have Prada? All of them, all these luxury stores, they just walked away. Yasha, there are certain things that don't, happened. Wives of Russian billionaires, they cannot live without Chanel, Prada, Louis Vuitton, and you name it. No, they're going to torture their husbands, but they will make them to bring all this luxury glassy life that existed in Moscow before recent events back.
1: That's amazing. I've never thought of Prada and Chanel leaving Moscow as the most effective weapon against the regime. So to broaden it out, what do you hope for from governments in the West and what do you hope for from me or from listeners to this podcast? What should we do and what shouldn't we do to maximize the chances, slim as they might be, that Russians will once again be able to live in a free country?
0: I would say that the most important thing now is to help ordinary Ukrainians. These are people, they suffer. And I think that it is just human to help them. I like what, you know, some people rent their apartments without any intention of living there, but just to help people who had to leave their places two million Ukrainian refugees. By the way, look at the numbers. Putin says that he came to Ukraine in order to defend Russian speakers in Ukraine, right? Because, you know, Russian speakers in the East, they're suffering from the Ukrainian nationalism. Now, I said two million refugees from Ukraine of that Fifty-three thousand went to Russia. Fifty-three thousand went to Russia. So, what is it? It is less than five percent. And all others went to Europe. So, once again, I think that it's eminent that the collective West helps Ukraine to sustain its statehood.
1: Yevgenia Alberts, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be liked, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show, To goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com.
0: This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces.